Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Tom. You're an alcoholic. Hi, group. I can feel the love in the room. Man, you can really feel it. Whew. Sometimes I can't hear the words, but I can always hear the music. You know, I can always hear the music when I'm with you. No wonder I like dancing. <laughs> I can hear the music finally. <laughs> hear the music. I am not a problem drinker. I am an alcoholic. Problem drinker, if faced with being a uh, threat of being fired, could stop drinking. They said they were going to fire me. I couldn't stop drinking. <laughs> I got fired. <laughs> Amazing. The problem drinker drinks like me. Sometimes he winds up in jail like me. But if faced with, his wife will tell him, well, we're going to get divorced, you know. He can stop to save a marriage. Problem drinker can do that. My wife said, I better. If I didn't, she would. And I didn't, she did. <laughs> and I got divorced. I'm an alcoholic. I said, I had no, I couldn't do it. You know? People were praying for me. I had two big banks in Baltimore praying for me. I had a lot of money. I'd get bankers paying, praying for you. That's something. <laughs> you know? I'm an alcoholic. My life's unmanageable. I hear people come up sometimes and they'll say, like, oh, I picked up a drink and I was an instant alcoholic. Oh, I could cry. I could bring tears to my eyes. And I got old eyes, but it still brings tears to my eyes. They missed all the fun of drinking. You know? I mean, you got this way in an unmanageable condition and you didn't have no fun? There's something missing. It, I think it's like getting pregnant without having sex. There's something wrong. <laughs> Terrible. Terrible. I enjoyed drinking. I had a good time. I liked everything about drinking. I liked how it smelled, how it tasted, what it did for me, the places that sold it, the people who went into places that sold it, the music that people who went into places and sold it played, and the other games they played, and I went back regular to make sure I didn't miss none. Didn't want to miss nothing. How can they go on without me? Yeah, that's the way I drank. Booze took me to a better place. Booze was much more effective for me than National Geographic. <laughs> I can't go anywhere. <laughs> Where do you want to go? You know? Well, I want to go to the Bahamas tonight. Well, about six drinks might do it. <laughs> well, Tom, you haven't been to Australia lately. I might take about eight drinks. You know? <laughs> sure. All these things happen to me now, Clarkson. What happens? What I'm saying to you. Let me describe how I was a barroom drunk. That's exactly, I'm from South Baltimore. You heard that before tonight from where another young lady was from. It's similar to South Philly years ago, down along Passyunk Avenue. Well, South Baltimore is similar to that. All right, now we're all fitted. I used to drink on Passyunk Avenue, that's how I know. <laughs> and, well, I was about, see, I was second oldest of nine kids, Irish Catholic family, you can figure, you know. Thomas O'Shea, Patrick Flynn. Oh, yes. <laughs> Built in dynamite cap. Don't smoke around him. <laughs> He'd love to go off any time. <laughs> My father worked for the post office. He didn't steal. We didn't have a lot of money. <laughs> but it, somehow he wasn't disgruntled. <laughs> you, know, you hear a lot about that today. They go out and shoot these disgruntled people. He wasn't disgruntled. And uh, we were pretty happy. In fact, my sister's here. She, 
I studied to be a priest. I won a scholarship, academic scholarship at Johns Hopkins University when I was 17. And my sister, she's a nun. And, you know, the parents did the best they could with us. You know? And uh, so I have no, no problems there. I don't know about dysfunctional and child within. I don't know anything about that kind of stuff. That's all I know about my child within. But every time I got drunk, that little sucker got drunk too. That's all I know about it. So I don't bother with the separation business, you know. <laughs> it's all got drunk the same thing. It was sort of a crowd thing, you know. <laughs> I really enjoyed booze, you know. I walk into a bar room and I moved a lot. A lot of drunks like me, we moved a lot. We have a built-in thermostat. We know exactly when to move. And that's the way I drank. We know intuitively it's tough to hit a moving target. Nobody's had to explain that to an alcoholic. We just know it. You know, that's how I am. And if you're an alcoholic, you, you got that built in too. Man, your, your, your intuitive sense of moving is far superior to any radar we ever developed. <laughs> it's, it's fantastic. We know. So I would move a lot. I was what you would call a gypsy drunk. See? And I would go into barbers where I didn't know people, like the Italian gentleman South Pass Young Avenue years ago. See, I would go in there. I said I used to have dark hair, believe it or not, and then they thought I was Italian. So I, I could piece you little Italian. It was okay. I got along okay. <laughs> but I walk into a bar, and I was really inside a little afraid of strangers. And I didn't want you to know that. See? So I wouldn't say anything. I sit next to a guy and I wouldn't say anything. After two drinks, I start talking to him. After two, and I lie. I just met him. I don't even live in the same city as him, and I lie to him. Sometimes just for practice. I, I just do it. It was out and gone before I even thought about it. Goodness gracious. If you want to know the truth from me, when I'm drinking, you know, Divide by three. It seems that that was the magic number. I seem to exaggerate everything by about 300%. <laughs> I sit next to a guy. Oh, yeah, I'm the vice president of my company. Well, I wasn't. I was three ranks down. I was the office manager. That's well. I don't mind. I don't mind told him, man. I make $100,000 a year. Well, I was making 33000 You know, that's how it was. Got nine girlfriends. <laughs> Some lover. Well, he had three. <laughs> and two didn't know it <laughs> and the one that knew it was very unhappy <laughs> so much for my love life yeah. that was on two drinks well four drinks I talked to the girl three stools down <clears throat> she never lingered about six drinks I was a singer oh yeah I wasn't melodious but I was loud <laughs> eight drinks I was a dancer, you know. I wasn't smooth, but I was fast, you know. Ten drinks was the magic thing. I became a man for all seasons, an enlightened one. Oh, my God. Have you ever been in a bar where the lighting was just right and where the music was just right and the mix between the boys and the girls was okay? And the ice cubes and the glasses sounded like wind chimes and a gentle breeze. And I would float above the crowd. Not quite to the ceiling, but float above the crowd. That was my semi-celestial state. <laughs> that was my first out-of-body experience. 
I was to have out of mind experiences soon after. <laughs> and in that enlightened state, I would do solve international problems. No local stuff, please. It took me all night to get here. <laughs> I would do problems like world hunger, redistribution of energy sources. And I could do these problems and solve them in 15 to 20 minutes, depending on what time they closed. <laughs> and there it is, 2 o'clock. And all the problems are solved. And I'm absolutely brilliant. I got to put sunglasses on just to look in the mirror. I'm so bright. And I can't find my car. <laughs> Reality darling, quickly. He can't find his own car. <laughs> there, right. That's what alcohol did for me. It took me to a better place. If I had some decisions to make, and I really didn't want to make them, or they were painful, if I had to tell somebody something that they wouldn't like, and maybe they wouldn't like me, see? I'd have a few drinks and then blunder through it without caring about their feelings, fortified by a couple of drinks. Where if I got fortified by too many, I'd find an excuse not to tell them until tomorrow. <laughs> I know none of you ever done that, but that's what I did. Booze was a, had a fantastic time drinking. I just really loved it. I drank for years. Alcohol was an answer. That's what I mean when I say I'm not a problem drinker. Life was a problem, oh yes. But alcohol was an answer, and it worked. And it worked well. Now, alcohol stops working. My only answer to life's problems is not working. Now, if the problems had to stop coming, when alcohol stopped working, it would have been a dead heat, and I wouldn't be here. They finished even. <laughs> but, all right. but it didn't work out that way. The problems of life continued. Here I am without an answer. Here I am without an answer. In order for me to come to Alcoholics Anonymous or to make any change of any kind, I had to have some hints that my life might be a tad unmanageable. Now, I like to call these hints direct hits. A mere nudge won't do it for me. I seem to have about a three-inch liner of concrete around the inside of my skull, and it takes a while for a new idea to penetrate. You know, I need people to talk to me with a jackhammer <laughs> to put a new idea in my head. You know, no wonder it buzzed a lot. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I had a ringing in my ears. I thought it was alcohol. It was a jackhammer. <laughs> people try to tell me something. See, that's what it was. Near misses wouldn't do it. I was married to a decent woman for 25 years. She was civilized and decent. And I actually liked her. She had a lot of good characteristics about her. I liked her. And uh, we became divorced after 25 years. I want you to listen now. There are some who are bent on <coughs> the psychiatric uh, aspects of alcoholism. We'll tell you about alcoholics not finishing things. And they mean well, but they're not alcoholics. They're studying this. And they got the wrong microscope. I was married for 25 years. Not 25 months. And we got divorced. So I had a lot of guilt and shame about that. I was the first guy in my family ever divorced. In my family, people stay married. Some happily, 
Some not happily, and some don't know what's happening, but they stay married. <laughs> so that's what I call a direct hit. A near miss would be uh, trial separation. That's a near miss. You know, uh, marriage counseling followed by a divorce. That's a near miss. That's postponing an inevitable. Divorce, boom, that's it. Wave bye-byes. That's a direct hit. Well, we later became pen pals. She sent me a bill, I sent her a check. You know, that's, that's, uh, that's just how that is. You know. And uh, I, uh, I helped found a, a, a service company in Baltimore City in 1950 with two older men. One guy was 36, the other was 45, and I was 19. And uh, I hustled, and I made a lot of money. And I thought I made a lot of money because I was smart. And that wasn't true. That was an illusion. I made a lot of money because I was excessive. 40 hours? Okay. 50? Fine. 60? Sure. 70? I don't care. 80? What's the, what's the ante? I'll match it. What's it take? I did that record for years. So I made a lot of money. You know, I <laughs> cut off a lot of other things. I knew about singleness of purpose long before I got here, like making money, you know. The company did well. I got fired from that company in 1979, 29 years later. Us alcoholics don't finish stuff, the sociologists will tell you. 29 years later, that's what I meant. Now, I didn't get a letter of reprimand in my personnel file. That's a near miss. Yeah. Tom, you're a very talented fellow, and we are sure that very, very uh, many Maryland corporations can use a fellow of your talent, but we are no longer one of them. Uh, P.S. Have you just cleaned up at 2 o'clock this afternoon? <laughs> Direct hit. Direct hit. I remember when I was an eight-year-old kid, nine-year-old kid, he was supposed to go to Holy Communion on Sunday morning with your class. And since I was the second oldest boy, sometimes the shoes I had had previous owners, like my older brother. <laughs> and and uh, sometimes, because he had grown them, but he was hard on the shoes. When I got them, the leather was pretty thin. So I had a lot of holes in the shoes, <laughs> the soles pretty, pretty soon, and cardboard. I, I knew the, the insulation value of cardboard long before Owings, Corning, fi Fiber ever developed anything about that. They were still in the fiberglass. I was in the cardboard wall way ahead of them. And uh, I didn't want to kneel down and take communion because it had holes in my shoes. And I thought, boy, when I get in charge of shoes and coats and stuff like that, I won't put up with this bull crap. And I never did. Even drunk, I didn't. Even sleeping under a bridge, I didn't. You know, I didn't put up with that crap. <laughs> anyway, I made a lot of money, that's what I'm telling you, because I was excessive. Well, I went broke. I spent all my money in some of yours. That's broke. When I got I didn't have reverse in cash flow. I think that's a fancy uptown word for the bum ain't been caught yet. That's what I really believe it is. I was broke. When I got here, you could shake me and I didn't, I didn't even jingle. That's what broke is. I had real estate was gone, marriage gone, job gone, investments gone, stock gone, everything gone, time gone, everything. I got detoxed. <laughs> what experience that was. A big shot getting detoxed. <laughs> I 
I'm sitting on the side of his bed with his IV going at me on a Friday afternoon. I, I, I was in a rehab here in Philadelphia. I just remember that. Levingren. Levingren. It's called Levin. Bucks County someplace. I was a little fogged. Hum, Humbleville. Humbleville someplace like that. Near a bridge. Bridge across over there. Anyway. I remember bridges. I'm big in the bridges. <laughs> well. <laughs> I'm detoxing. I'm in there and. These people look sort of funny to me, and I, I knew I was sort of funny myself, but I was hoping nobody would notice, you know. And, and this is a real big nurse in charge, and, and I complained to her that uh, my door didn't have a knob on my side. And, and she said I didn't need a knob, I wasn't going anywhere. And I wanted to know well, where I was. She said, you're in a hospital. I said, well, how can I know now? She said, well, this is a psychiatric ward. I said, you mean a nut ward? She says, well, if you want to be plain about it, yeah, a nut ward. That's where you're at. Well, right away, I thought I was probably there to evaluate the place, you know, how they're running, you know. No, she says, you're one of the ball players. You're in here. You're in here. You're nuts. And, uh, you know, I was partially relieved. As odd as that sounds, I was partially relieved because, you know, it's a very tiring process for an alcoholic like me to pretend to be sane for a long time. <laughs> a very tiring process. Most of us should get Oscars, who you know, for any period of time. You know, it's hard, isn't it? It's hard, and you got to be consistent, and you got to have a good memory and all that crap. <laughs> you know. So I was sort of relieved to hear I was in the nut ward, and. It's, it's, it's sort of strange. You know, when you're growing up, you, you go to school, your parents say, well, when you go to school, you listen, you listen to the teacher, you do this, you do that. It's called protocol, but you're told what to do by elders and those responsible for you. And then when you go to a dance, you're told you do this, you don't do this, and all that. And when you go to work, you do this, you do that. You know, the protocol. You were taught this by elders, you know. But nobody ever said to me, now, Tom, when you go to the nut house, this is the protocol you follow. Nobody ever told me that. And the other 60 people in there, or 59, or 60 of us in there, apparently they weren't exposed to protocol either. So there it was. And they had problems other than alcohol in there, too. So the best way I could describe it was mixed nuts. There we are, 60 mixed nuts in a lock ward and no protocol. <laughs> Everybody just winging it. <laughs> and I'm an executive, you know. <laughs> there I am. Well, when somebody tells you that you're nuts, you know, when somebody hints you may have a little emotional instability, that's a near miss. But when they say to you, you know, you're a nut, I'm a nurse, and you're surrounded by a lot of nuts, and you're under lock and key, that's a direct hit. <laughs> you know. And that was on the outside. How about the inside, where the real hurt is? All grown men don't talk about the feelings. This one does. This one didn't used to. How about the promises I made to people, and I knew they loved me? I knew they loved me deeply because the heat was high and they were standing still. 
and I broke every promise. And I was as sincere as you were when you made that promise, just as much. Not more, but certainly not less. And I, too, broke that promise. And I was riddled with guilt. I was so riddled with guilt, I shut up and didn't promise anymore. Then I turned to the quiet promise I would make to myself. I wouldn't tell anyone about it. So if I failed one more time, at least only I would know. And now you know, because truly I failed. One more time, and again and again. And I was riddled by shame. I was riddled on the outside by guilt, promises to others, and torn up by shame, promises to me. And in that condition, from a nut house, I arrived, well done, and ready for slicing in Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, man. They had said, turn your will your life over Ronald McDonald would have been okay with me. I wanted to talk to no theologians. <laughs> you know. I came in here, and they said, sit on that chair. I sat on the chair. They told me it doesn't have to, I thank God for the old timers who told the truth, it doesn't have to be that way anymore. And I didn't believe them. I said, under my breath, bullshit, it's always been that way. I didn't believe them. And then they told me, we have a solution. I accepted your solution before I knew what it was. It had to be better than what I had. I would have accepted anything. And I'm here to tell you, it is not difficult to surrender when there's nothing left to defend. And when you're laying on the floor, all fear leaves because you intuitively know you can't fall off no floor. That's where you are, right on the floor. That's the kind of condition. And like Vicki, I thank God for the gift of desperation, the gift of desperation. Desperation is the father of my willingness. I would love to report to you it was inspiration. It would sound wonderful, but it wouldn't be true. My willingness was fathered by desperation. Got a sponsor, a no-nonsense sponsor. You've probably gathered by now, I'm like you, I'm a searcher. <laughs> when I was a young man, I spent four years in the seminary studying to be a Catholic priest. Alcohol was not my first avenue of search. <laughs> I searched philosophy and religion, women, states, money, like you. But alcohol brought me here. And I knew the search was over. I knew the answer was here, and I didn't know what it was. Here comes a sponsor, truck driver by trade. Tells me I don't speak English. The nerve of him. Doesn't he know that I won the award for translating Homeric Greek? Of course he didn't. He didn't know who Homer was. <laughs> what the hell he you know about Homeric Greek? He thought Homer was a four-base, you know. <laughs> That's what he thought. He didn't know anything about Homer. Something that, you know, Hank Aaron would hit her, Babe Ruth. That's all he knew about Homer. He didn't know. He said, you don't speak English. I'm going to teach you to speak English. 
The first English lesson I got was my second day of sobriety. My sponsor said to me, I'm going to tell you this is a simple program. And you're going to assume, because you think you're intelligent, and I can look into your racetrack eyes and see that you're also fast, <laughs> he says, you're going to assume that it's easy because it's simple. And that's because you don't speak English. I says, oh, he just got a crock. Then he, then he lays me out real good. He says, simple means direct and uncomplicated. And easy means without effort. It is not the same. I said, oh, shit. Oh, God. This guy's right. Just because it's simple don't mean it's easy. He's going to teach me English, the truck driver. I looked into his eyes. He had those real calm blue eyes. Eh? And I had been exposed to good teachers, good Sulpician priests, dedicated men who really knew their stuff and loved God. And this guy talked about God like he had lunch with him. He wasn't talking about a God of gilt-edged books or stained-glass windows or some guy far away or somebody I had to get pre-qualified to talk to. You know? He says, you just show up where he is. I said, well, where is he? He says, for now, He's in the room of Alcoholics Anonymous, for now. You'll find out later some of his other locations. <laughs> He's a now guy. <laughs> he told me, thank God he told me the truth. He told me, can you postpone a drink for 24 hours? He never asked me to stop drinking. Never. If he had asked me to stop drinking, I would have to say, Wally, I can't, because I tried before. If you people had said to me, Tom, the only qualification for membership, if you stop drinking, I'm unqualified because I tried and stopped and failed all the time. But no, in your wisdom, it was postponed. What an important lesson to learn. Oh, Tom, that's simplistic. Bull. Let me tell you, there's some other things that happened in my life that I didn't like. After I got sober, and thank God, I learned to postpone taking radical action for at least 24 hours. I knew based on the way I stopped drinking, I could stand still for heat for 24 hours. That's what I knew. I used to be a quick draw artist. You know, somebody might say something, boom. I don't do that anymore. I used to talk to people and psychologists about that crap. You know, my sponsor broke me out of that habit of responding too quickly without thinking. Tasty cake. Yeah. He said, buy a tasty cake. I said, oh, Christ, here I am now. He says, take the cake out and throw it away. It ain't too good. He said, but save the box. <laughs> he put the box in my shirt. Next time you want to straighten somebody out, you touch that tasty cake box. You remember that commercial? Take a tasty cake break. You just think of that commercial. It goes like this. So all I gotta do is touch that box and I'll trigger the thought. So I'm walking around, you know. Most people must have thought I was Napoleon. I'm going like that. <laughs> I'm just learning, you know, to pause. That was all. This is how we learn things from the older people in alcoholics, and they will tell you what worked for them. You know? My sponsor is one of the funniest guys I've ever known. You know. 
I remember I was, you hear new people, I'm not qualified to help anybody. That's laziness. I was sober four months. I was in my home group. My sponsor belongs to a different group. He said, hey, they want to be associated with Riff Raff like me. <laughs> well, you know, he knew me better than I knew me, so I let him go. <laughs> so he come in here. I'm over in the middle of the floor talking to my friend, bullcrapping. I know you guys don't do that. And he told me, you get over by the door and greet the new person coming through that door. Oh, well, I'm only sober four months, you know. He says, you get over that door, and there's a guy coming through there has got four days. You go over there and tell him what you did to get four months sobriety. Tell him what you did. But for God's sake, don't tell him what you think. <laughs> so I hung around for the door for a while. I'm going to share with you my experience quickly with the steps. With my sponsor's guidance, I did the first 12 steps in under four months. See? I didn't want to do the steps that way because I heard other people saying, Oh, you went to the fog list. So I tried to pull that crap off my sponsor. He says, Tom, you're going to have to do these steps just to lift the fog, don't you? That applies to them. It don't apply to you. <laughs> my sponsor explained powerlessness to me. He made me read the doctor's opinion ten times before we discussed powerlessness. He says, I'm not going to be talking to you in English and you're listening in Albanian. So we're going to be talking about the same thing. There's required reading, the doctor's opinion. Now those of us who start on chapter five miss that. Okay. Those who start on calculus missed short division <laughs> and it's rest on short division <laughs> when you got a calculus you got to go back to addition i am powerless over alcohol my sponsor told me that don't you get all excited about your life being unmanageable don't get yourself all exercised that's what he told me he says i know guys like you i've seen them come and go mostly go and they get all exercised about unmanageability. We all come here, we're in debt. We have a strained or fractured relationship with our loved ones. We're a bit nuts. We're psychotic and self-centered and all kinds of things. You know, and you wanna, you wanna come in here and you wanna, you know, get good, finish your college, take up weightlifting, quit smoking by Thursday. <laughs> he says, it don't work that way. And don't you worry about unmanageability. He says, after you're around here two years, you'll have a job, nice little job. You won't have the pressure you used to have. You won't have the money either, but that'd be good for you. You know, and you'll have a little apartment. It won't be any big house where you've got to cut a big lawn. You know, and that'd be good for you. And you get yourself a little car. You have to pay cash for it, you know, because ain't no bank going to trust you no more. <laughs> so it's got to be a little car, and that'll be good for you, he says. And then you'll get yourself a little girlfriend, and there you pay Saturday afternoon, driving your little car down the little street with your little girlfriend, and you look over and say, oh, she's a nice little girlfriend, and this is a nice little car, and that's a nice little job, you know. 
And I said I was an alcoholic because my life was unmanageable. My life is now manageable. And I am managing. Therefore, I cannot be an alcoholic. And that's what happens to us in two and three, four years. We forget powerlessness. Unmanageability comes and goes in our lives. Powerless, <laughs> it's staying. It's staying. When I am not drinking, I am powerless over alcohol. And when I am drinking, I am powerless over alcohol. So it don't make no difference. Drinking or not drinking, I am powerless over alcohol. He said, now do you understand that? I says, yeah, I can't put it more plain. He says, I think I can, but you don't you understand it. Yeah, I understand that. He says, powerlessness is staying, and you need something that's staying. Then he refers me to page 45. You've heard today a lot about the big book, the unused tool, the best tool we have. It's a big book, outside of God, good sponsorship. I mean, 18,000 other things. <laughs> we get there, and it says, lack of power was our dilemma. Now remember, alcoholics wrote this. Their conclusion for their fractured lives was, lack of power was the dilemma. The alcoholic said this. Remember where it comes from. That's important. The alcoholic could have easily said, lack of compassionate wife was the dilemma. Because a lot of alcoholics like me thought this. But they did not. They could have said, lack of boss. Good boss was our dilemma, but they did not. How about lack of a good lawyer and a $30,000 loan was our dilemma. Oh, yeah. Alcoholics could have said that. They could have said many things. They could have said drinking was our dilemma. Oh, drinking was our dilemma. But they did not. They said lack of power. They had to pick the main problem. And it was not alcohol. It was alcohol is but a symptom. It goes on later. Lack of power. Here I am, a powerless sucker, <laughs> confused, you know. And then he tell me, that's your problem. And as Earl and others have said so eloquently before me today and my teachers, the entire problem of all of my living, all of my life, not just drinking, is set forth in step one, the entire problem. I am powerless. I cannot live successfully in a powerless condition. That's the statement for me of my problem with living. The entire statement of the total answer to the problem once identified is in the second step. It's a statement. It is not the answer, but it's a statement what the answer is. We came to believe that a power, there we go, Tom's out of power, there comes some power in. We came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. Well, I had papers. I feel sorry if you guys had no papers. You could walk around, oh, I ain't nuts, you know, 
and you could hang around there a couple of years and argue with yourself, you know, playing psychiatrists, you know, and latter-day Freuds and all that crap. I didn't have that problem. I had papers. <laughs> You're sitting there with papers. What are you going to do? I said to my sponsor, he said, how many opinions do you want? <laughs> there I am with papers, you know. <laughs> I'm nuts. It was okay. It was okay. When I admit that to you, when I admit to you I was a fairy as a husband, a businessman, a friend, you know, my own affairs, that I'm riddled with guilt and shame, and I'm ashamed of myself, and I'm powerless. I admit all those things to you, and it's true. It's a little late for me to try to impress you. A little late. So what follows on those admissions is honesty. Whatever honesty I got, it was not in pursuit of any kind of virtue. It was by default. You already knew all about me. And I couldn't impress you. Cat was out of the bag. <laughs> you know. So what are you going to do? I got the problem. I know what the problem is. Lack of power. It's not alcohol. Oh, it's alcohol. Haven't you stopped drinking? Yeah. Were you okay? Uh, no. <laughs> well, alcohol was removed. If alcohol was the problem, the problem should have went with it, right? Well, the problem didn't, didn't go with it. It stayed on its own. <laughs> it's separate. Separate. For me. Oh. But you get restless, irritable, discontent, you know? Right. Oh, I don't know about this God business. I don't want to say I'm an alcoholic. Listen, it's crap. Good sponsor, cut through that crap. Good sponsor's like a buzz saw. Get real to it, you know. What was that sound? <laughs> that was my crap. <laughs> what happened to it? I don't know. I'm not in pursuit of lost crap. <laughs> I don't know where it is. I think it's none of my business. It's just none of my business, you know. That's one of the great gifts of Alcoholics Anonymous to this alcoholic. To find out what is my business. What you do is not my business. Well, he's doing it wrong. That, how does that affect you, Tom? It doesn't affect me at all. Well, it's not your business. Well, kids, you see the way he's driving, Wally? Drive one car. Yours. <laughs> oh, I mean, he's a hazard. He's a hazard on a New Jersey highway. Well, soon you become traffic commissioner for New Jersey. You talk to him. But in the meantime, <laughs> Mind my own business. That ain't my business. What is your business, Tom? Almost nothing. <laughs> well, that's not very impressive. Well, you're not a very impressive person. <laughs> How do you know? I've taken a fourth and fifth step. So I know. I'm not an impressive person. One of the side issues I learned from the fourth and fifth step that my life could have significance without me being important. Ooh, what a relief. What a relief. Your value is based on what you have given away. Oh, it's easy to write a check, get rid of the pastor. You know that feeling, so do I. How about sharing your life? <sighs> Stakes just went up, didn't they? This is the end of side one. Please turn the tape over and continue to play on side two.
That's what cost. That's what cost. But it's not painful when you love. When you love sharing, it's not painful. And you don't lose anything. It's popular, was popular some years ago in Baltimore. I know you people in Jersey are a little advanced of us. That, that you, um, we had a lot of people around working on their character defects. Wonderful. Marvelous. I heard that. And God, it sounded industrious. And I wanted to be in charge of something besides ashtrays. I mean, you know, I'm executive. I told you that then. No? Yeah. So I thought it was time to expand my expertise beyond ashtrays. I'm working on my character defects. And I thought I was going to impress my sponsor. He's been my sponsor for 16 years. And I haven't yet impressed him. <laughs> I think I better give up the attempt. I've never impressed my sponsor. Never. I make him laugh a lot, and he scratches his head a lot, but he don't say anything. He just looks at me. I come to my sponsor with a cockamania. My sponsor can say no in the most beautiful words you ever heard, and he's a truck driver. I went to him with a cockamania idea of mine. Oh, it was a, I thought it was brilliant at night. And in the morning, it seemed intelligent, but not quite brilliant. And I was going to share it with him, you know. I decided to. And he listened to me, and he drank his coffee. Well, Tom, yeah, that sounds like something. I said, well, what do you think, Wally? He says, well, that might work for you. I've never met anybody else that ever worked for it. <laughs> <laughs> He's over 32 years, you know. He never, isn't that nice no? <laughs> Have you ever heard of a more beautiful no in your life? <laughs> Holy God. He always pulls up that stuff. We'll finish on time. Don't worry about that. Let me share with you what is my experience on the entire growth per process. It has nothing to do with working on A sick mind cannot fix a sick mind. It's real simple. I went to God and asked him to remove the compulsion to drink. And he did. Even though I didn't think he would because I thought I didn't deserve it. An old idea. I didn't deserve it. That's an old idea. But he still did. Because of what I thought. My sponsor says, now you got a successful track record with God. You ask him to remove something and you were ready to let it go. And he took it. I said, yes, that's right, Wally. He says, now, you've identified, you know, anger and fear and resentments as the core to your living problem. Yeah, self-centeredness. Yeah, Wally. You ask God to remove those. And I'll guarantee you, he will remove exactly as much as you're willing to let go of. I got scared. Because some stuff I was ready for all of it and some stuff none. <laughs> you know, I'm different from you. I know you were ready all, but I wasn't. <laughs> I was scared. He would remove too much. Then I'd have to be good. Oh, gee, good. Then my, the rest of my life would be boring. I'm walking around. Good. <laughs> oh, I don't drink today. Life sucks. I'm hanging in there. My girlfriend is a wench. 
See? Oh, yeah. See, it's terrible. My boss is a jerk. I'm self-employed. Oh, yeah. And I'm the only good driver in New Jersey. Oh, yeah. Who the hell? Where did this guy come from? That's not what this is about. Let it go. Let everything go. That's scary, Tom. Oh, yeah. I'm not staying up here, macho man in front of you. Not by any stretch of the imagination. I'm standing up here totally dependent upon my father. Totally. Which I call God. I'm dependent upon him. Sure, I'll fall. Sure, I'll fall. Aren't you afraid of falling, Tom? No. Why? God always catches me. God always catches you? I mean, he don't turn his head away and say, whoops. <laughs> yeah, alcoholics are. I says, no, God's never dropped the ball yet. God don't make any errors. He don't even go, oops. <laughs> you can't live in the real world like that, huh? Yes, you can. How do you know? Because I do it. The company that fired me hired me back when I was sober three or four years. And I made amends to some of the men whose training I neglected. I was an excellent trainer. Just a natural talent, you know. I can't make shortcakes and stuff like that, but I can train guys. That's what I can do. And uh, I decided to leave them in 1988. I was sober eight years. And I found a small company myself. And I decided I'm going to try this thing out. Either I can or I cannot. I'm not going to pussy ass around with it. I'm just going to do it. So the main thing I do today in Maryland is go everywhere and carry the message of the spiritual awakening. That's the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. The spiritual awakening. That anybody, a guy from a nut house, a divorced guy, a failure, a wayward guy, can carry the message of the spiritual awakening. Not because the drunk is qualified, because the message is so powerful, it just rolls over us. There is no way that you can get drunk if you stand in front of the 12 steps like a giant wave. They'll roll right on over you if you stand in the way of the 12 steps. There's no way. God will render you sober. You've got to move your feet. That's all. I can't resist that power, that giant wave called God. The grace of God just washes over us. Can you put that into practice in your business? Yep. I got one employee now. We got real busy. Had to hire a guy to work with me. He's an alcoholic. <laughs> He's sober too, about nine years. You know? You should hear some of the conversations we have. Newsweek or Business Week, we never cover none of this stuff. <laughs> He's having a business problem. I'll say, now, what is the primary thing we're trying to accomplish here? Read out of AA. What is our primary purpose here? That's how we solve business problems. Cut through the crap. Does it work? Yeah. Does God provide? Yeah. Yeah, he does. 
I found, as throughout our big book, we are told, if you're worried about economic problems, that's okay. If you're worried about physical problems, that's okay. If you're worried about emotional problems, that's okay. There is a solution. And the solution is to address, for me, not you, for me to address my spiritual problem first in total expectation, belief, and experience that all others follow. They never precede. Never. You mean regardless of how hard you try? Regardless of how hard you try. Where is that? It's in the big book. How do you know? Read page 127. <laughs> Can you live that way? Sure. Sure. I live in total expectation of the grace of God in my life, not because I deserve it, because I ask him for it, and I am his kid. <laughs> Do I read? I am his kid. Yeah. He loves me. That's what God does. He loves me. God is love. Oh, you've got to be something else to carry a message. Did you ever look at the moon? It's all about old ideas. You were taught in science that an object to reflect the light had to be highly polished and smooth, right? You taught that. Most of us. Oh, sure. Well, we know now that the moon is not very highly polished and it's not smooth. Yet it can reflect the light, not its own. It can reflect the light of the sun. Why? Not because it's polished or smooth. Because the light of the sun is so powerful. You mean a pocked up drunk like you can carry the message? Sure, I don't have to be smooth. Why? Because the light of God is so powerful. It has nothing to do with me. Nothing at all. I show up. That's all. I just show up. I can do that. So can you. So can you. You help the new woman. You simply show up. I was standing on a corner in South Baltimore where I knew a lot of people. I knew 85% of the people. There was a major market there. I mean, old-time outdoor market. Market's about 250 years old. Major bank. Spring day. Place is packed with people. An old Italian brick contractor is driving his truck with the cement all over the side down the main street, and he hollers out. He's a guy with a mouth this big, but a heart that big. You know, my kind of a guy. He hollers out the window. Hey, Tom, he says, oh, you look good. And I says, yeah, Angel, I'll feel good. He says, I heard you stop drinking. And everybody's looking around. I <laughs> see, I do all these people. And I said, yeah, and said, that's a fact, you know. He says, uh, oh, you saw the light, huh? I thought, this is the honor. No, Angelo, I felt the heat. <laughs> that guy coming out of all anonymous. So this is no flight of fancy we're talking about here. We learn the alcoholics anonymous when we trust God. We can stand still for the heat. In total expectation that the light always follows, it never precedes. I always wanted the light, but I was unwilling to stand still for the heat. I always fled. Stand still. God is there. How do you know God's there? Because you are there. That's the great reality within you. Where you are, God is. Where you are, love is. Do not fear. 
so beautifully simple. I used to practice the absence of God. God was way out there someplace. The contact, it was a long distance call. <laughs> you know? And I come to you in Alcoholics Anonymous. And you say the great reality, God within. And if God's within me, he's within you. And God's everywhere. So you allow me, instead of practicing the absence of God, I practice the presence of God. And I don't even need a phone. I could ask you. Saves a lot of time. I don't have to say any special words. I used to try to pray to impress God. Can you imagine that? What an ego. I'm going to impress God? The guy who made the Mississippi River and the Aurora Borealis and the planets and all that shit, and I'm going to, I'm going to impress God with how I talk to him. Woo! No wonder I got papers. <laughs> I know. I know none of you guys ever did that. Well, I'm admitting it for me. <laughs> Do you know what it's really like for me? It's Chuck C. said it years ago. Uncover, discover, discard. That's an encapsulation of the action. We uncover, we discover, we discard. If God is within, then when I remove the old ideas, I'm getting to the core, the truth. God. What are the old ideas? That it is important what you think of me. No. It's not that you are unimportant. What you think of me is none of my business. That is your business. <laughs> it's that simple. That's not important. It's important that you hold a good position. I've held a good position and it was not important. It is important that you be respected in your community. I was both, both respected and jeered. It's not important. This is my experience. It's not important. What is important? That I keep willing, that I keep my mind open, that I live in total expectation of the grace of God in my life every day. Earl said it. It is the wisdom of the ages then men of courage are seldom found lacking in faith and they do not apologize for their belief in a God. Instead, they let him demonstrate through them what he can do. Men and women of courage do that. And you live in the total expectation. That's all you do is say, God, here I am. What do you want me to do? Well, I want you to go over there, Tom. Well, what do you want me to do when I get over there, God? I'll tell you when you get there. Well, can't you tell me now, God, so I can prepare for it and do it right? He says, no, you'll screw it up and you'll probably forget. I'll tell you when you get there. <laughs> well, don't get testy, God. <laughs> he says, I brought you in. I can take you out, Flynn. You understand that? <laughs> I says, I sure do. <laughs> yes, sir, God. I'm going to say a little prayer I say every morning to myself. I believe the humor is one of the first signs to me of a spiritual awakening. Because we drop the weight. I'm in charge. It's serious business. A failure is in charge of my life. Me. And that's bad enough, but I'm afraid you're going to find out. Oh, shit. Double jeopardy. That's not important. What is important? It's a little prayer.
Morning, God. This is Tom. I know that you know who I am. It's me, sometimes. I forget who I am. Would you please let me know what you want me to do today? I'd appreciate it if you make it sort of plain. I'm alcoholic, you know. <laughs> P.S. Give me the gumption to get it done. I'm also wayward. <laughs> That's it. It tells me who's in charge, who the power is, you know, what I'm supposed to do, and where the source of strength is. And it's done lightly and simply. And I can do it with my father who loves me. He just laughs at me. You know, I can see him now. I have a vivid imagination with God. You know, I can see him now. God coming in the morning to the big office in St. Peter's working the night shift. And God comes in and says, oh, Pete, anything interesting happened last night? He says, yeah, you know that nut we got down in Maryland? <laughs> that one acting up again? Yeah. God, do you know what he did last night? No, no, no. He, he was over there 12-stepping some people, you know. And he actually forced them into the car to take them to a meeting. They didn't want to go. You know, and he got some other guys to help him. He said, he did what? Yeah, that's what he did. He does stuff like that. He's, he's crazy. He's absolutely crazy. Yeah. So, Pete says, why don't we call that guy all the time, God? Well, all them people in Maryland who's qualified to go and get some of these nuts, you know? We got doctors, we got psychiatrists, we got, you know, people are very talented and people who could talk to alcoholics a lot better than him. God says, yeah, I know. But the son of a bitch is always willing. I would got to make one call and he goes, with these other guys I could telephone answering machines, I'm busy. Oh, yes, I'm busy. This guy's not qualified, but he sure as hell is willing. You, you alcoholics in recovery, and you other kids of God, I thank you for a great gift. You have converted my desperation into willingness. And God has converted my willingness and taken me into his heart. Thank you.